Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and let's go get sushi and not pay. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I shall try some of your burned, replicated bird meat. <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of ultra-social theory and expectancy value theory. Today, we'll be talking about what we are thankful for in science fiction and, to some degree, fantasy. Mm-hmm. The next episode is about the sci-fi noir detective novel, The Last Policeman, and then this podcast will revert back to its original form, an Expanse recap show. Dan! We're going to be an Expanse recap show again. Oh, I miss those days, Anna. I am looking forward to, you know, to doing this again. Those are simpler times. It's, yeah, it was. <laughs> I, the only thing that makes me sad about this is that I believe there are only six episodes in this last season. Mm-hmm. I just hope they are I'm sure they'll worthy. be outstanding yes. and they'll be a podcast worthy and we'll have a great time. And then maybe we'll figure out something else to recap on a regular basis. True. Who True. knows? Yes. If you are interested in the Expanse recaps, well, then you should keep listening to the show. And you should also follow us on Twitter, where I think we'll probably be discussing it when it airs and mm-hmm. maybe before it airs. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert, someone has access to the screeners. <sighs> I am on Twitter as at Anna Marie Cox. He is at Dan Dresner. That's a great way to reach us about just about anything. And we do have day jobs and tweet about those things. But if you're interested in the intersection of science fiction and politics, well, you're listening to the show. You should support this show. Dan, how would you support this show? What is a way people could support this show? Well, they could go outside in their lawn and like yell out to the heavens that they like this show. Or they could go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash space the nation. And there are plenty of benefits of doing that, Anna. Do you want to talk about what the benefits are this time? There are so many benefits. Well, you'll feel warm and fuzzy inside. (laughs) I think that's the first thing. You will feel good about supporting one of your favorite podcasts, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. There is some swag involved. But you know what? I think that the, the real reason to join is you become a part of the Space the Nation community. Dan, you get early access to podcasts and you can join our Discord channel, uh, which is very uh, fun and lively and has a life of its own. Mm -hmm. I am there pretty regularly. Dan, we make fun of so that he'll come and see what we've said about him. And that's pretty much the only way we can get him to visit. Yeah. (laughs) Hold on. Okay. Yeah. And also... (laughs) You can join our AMAs, which are monthly the first Saturday of the month. We're also going to celebrate getting to 250 patrons with a special patrons-only show. Dan, we did 28 Days Later last time. Mm -hmm. Who knows what we'll do this time? You know what? The patrons get to decide. It's up to the patrons. We will, as before, give the patrons a selection of one of three possibilities, and then we will do whichever one they select because we love to please our patrons. And getting back to the going out on your lawn and shouting how much you'd love the show, there is something related to that mm. that people can do. Dan? What, what is it on it? Oh, well, they can, uh, you know, rate and review the show. You can tell your friends. You can tell your neighbors. And, you know, this is generally the way in which, as I understand it, in the media world, you generate something called buzz, which <laughs> then in turn <laughs> lead to more people. I have a PhD on it, so I know about these things. <laughs> Dan... This is going to be our Thanksgiving episode. Mm -hmm. Why are we doing a Thanksgiving episode? And what the hell is a Thanksgiving episode (laughs) when it comes to science fiction politics? So I'm glad you asked that. (laughs) In some ways, this is Thanksgiving, but this also closes in, in fact, on the one year anniversary of Space the Nation. I believe next month we will hit the one year mark. 
And it struck me as appropriate to say what in the science fiction world makes us thankful. And there are many reasons to be thankful for science fiction content, and we will be talking about a very wide variety of those things but <laughs> in, in, in this uh, episode. But I think there are three possible reasons, you know, we can think about it. The first is it figuratively blew our minds. In other words, right. you know, I'm sure, Anna, you have had this experience. I've had the experience where you're just reading or watching something and you get a plot twist or you get a world building that you simply did not think about before. This obviously happens a little more often when you're young, but nonetheless, it's still quite something to experience. And it, it it's a wonderful thing when it happens. Second, because this particular piece of science fiction content affected our personal trajectory. Either it got us at a particular moment in which, you know, we thought about the world a different way, or in some cases, it actually literally led to other things that we wound up writing about, which were a lot of fun. And then the third reason is really the simplest one, but it's it's one that's important. It just makes us happy, Anna. You know, there's science fiction <laughs> out there that I will watch an endless amount of times. I will watch The Empire Strikes Back God knows how often, you know, because it's a good movie and I don't care how crappy the sequels are. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me that we've already done a lot of stuff that I'm thankful for. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have had, you know, the ability to do whatever we want <laughs> <laughs> on this show. And we've, I think, both picked out some things that we just personally love yes. and that affect us in some of the ways that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, like I would say The Matrix blew my mind. Exactly. Right? Like it, it crystallized things that I had, I mean, I'd thought about before, but, you know, hadn't put together in quite that way. Right. And we uh, recently did Event Horizon, which is something that, that makes me very happy. And it's just sort of personally, like, enriching. I do think that this is a great idea. I think, like, a lot of people feel, I'm not going to say mixed about Thanksgiving, because the, the holiday of Thanksgiving is actually pretty shitty, like, the history of it and whatnot. But the idea of giving thanks, I mean, I think we have to sort of rescue Thanksgiving from Thanksgiving. You know what I mean? Like... The, the history of it's so horrible, and yet there is, we should be giving gratitude all the time. And so I'm in favor of, of trying to just really center this, not on whatever official reasons we have, but rather like a moment to just really dig into, you know, what we're thankful for. So I confess, Anna, I am very enthusiastic about this holiday. I'm, I'm a little less conflicted than you, although I certainly grant these sort of official reasons why one can be absolutely appalled about the history. That said, first of all, like you, gratitude is good. And any holiday in which you are actually supposed to give thanks for the blessings you have received over the past year, I think is a pretty good idea, um, yeah. regardless of the origins. We have to rescue Thanksgiving from Thanksgiving, right. like I said. I mean, the idea of Thanksgiving is awesome. Also, as someone who is Jewish, I have to say Thanksgiving has always been my favorite holiday because, you know, when you were growing up as a kid and you're Jewish, particularly in a community that is decidedly not Jewish, that is decidedly Gentile, you don't celebrate Christmas. You know, you don't have all the lights out. You feel a little bit weird that way. But Thanksgiving, everyone does. And so I always like the fact that we could, you know, have the, the big family holiday. And, you know, let's be honest, in modern times... Thanksgiving is about giving thanks, and I agree that we should rescue that. It is also about food, football, and family, Anna. And while there is no denying that all three of those things, done the wrong way, can be toxic, they can also be glorious when done the right way. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Dan, you know how much I love football. I know. That's uh, why I put that in there. Yes. And I also love food. Family, uh, you know. Good. I said it could be good. toxic on it. You know, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not denying but that. But it's true. I, I should confess that, like, my mixed feelings about the holiday do not extend to the food. Like, I like, I love autumn for the food, basically. <laughs> like, I, I wish I could eat pumpkin spice year round. Like, that's, I'm, I'm that person. I am. I cannot wait till pumpkin spice season. When I go to Trader Joe's this time of year, like I have to like really consciously restrain myself from like getting everything that's flavored pumpkin spice. You know, like at Trader Joe's they have like yes, I do pumpkin know. spice bread and pumpkin spice ravioli. They have pumpkin, pumpkin spice, spice samosas. I think I felt like I think I yeah. t- I tweeted this out like about a month ago. There was like a in the freezer uh, aisle. There was like pumpkin samosas and pumpkin you know something else. It was just things you would not associate with pumpkin. All right, but but let's move yeah. on to the to the to the real heart of the holiday, which yes. is sort of food, but mostly thanks. Dan, do you want to start us off on things that we're grateful for in science fiction? I will be happy to. So we've each chosen three genre examples, uh, and we will share them with you. We are not going to recap them or talk about the IR in them, just so you know. Uh, we're just going to say why we're thankful. <laughs> but I am happy to start. So the first thing I am thankful for is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is an absurdist science fiction series that started out as a BBC radio show. According to legend, Douglas Adams was stumped about what to write about. So in an act of desperation, he blew up the earth in the very first episode. Adams eventually adapted the radio show into a series of five books. There is also a film, and frankly, the less said about that, the better, although there's some fine people in it. I confess it was one of the first movies I think I watched where I literally fell asleep. Um, I was that bored. The first time I experienced The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, however, I was in high school. Now, I'm going to confess something, and longtime listeners of this podcast are probably aware of this. In contrast to Anna, I was much less exposed to the sci-fi genre in high school because, if I am being honest, I was lazy and did very little fiction reading outside of assigned English homework. And frankly, even in terms of the assigned English homework, I was maybe batting like 333. You know, it, it was I was not that active of a reader, which is pretty weird given what my profession wound up being. <laughs> uh, all I can say is I was a proficient reader and not a voracious one. But that said, The Hitchhiker's Guide just made me laugh. And so I had to read absolutely all of them. Anna, what about you? When did you first uh, encounter them? I want to say junior high, maybe high school. It is one of the things that you kind of almost find yourself handed if you're a young nerd, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. you must read this. Yeah. And I read it and I loved it. I do, for some reason, associate it with Tom Robbins novels in my head, which have not aged very well. <laughs> and you know what? It is because it's the hitchhiking in the, the Tom Robbins novel with the woman with the huge thumb that does the hitchhiking. That oh. might be why I associate it, not mm. because... I read them at the same time. Although I think I also read them at the same time. I've always suspected it wouldn't survive a rereading. But mm-hmm. maybe that means we should do it as a cannon fodder episode. I would be delighted to do a cannon fodder on this one, I think. Because to be fair, I think we've done this for some of your favorites, like H.P. Lovecraft, for example. And I think it, mm-hmm. it's entirely fair to add this to the queue for, for 2022. But let me explain why I'm thankful for it. And there are many reasons for this. The first is just the central joke of the entire series, which is in the the book, the protagonist 
Arthur Dent, who is literally the most English person on the planet. He finds out that his friend, who, if you're in England, this is a much funnier name, Ford Prefect, because that was actually the name of a car um, in the United Kingdom, was actually an alien writing for the galactic version of Lonely Planet. The initial entry for Earth in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was harmless. After spending many, many, many years on Earth, Ford had managed to update it to mostly harmless, which seems entirely apt. After the Earth is destroyed, Arthur and uh, Ford then go on a variety of adventures uh, spanning literally five novels, which there is no way I'm going to be able to detail here. Really, honestly, what I love about this book or about the series of books are the absurdest details. The book is littered with sort of asides written in sort of a a narrator's voice. So among other things, we learn, for example... (laughs) of a uh, blockbuster philosopher trilogy by Ulan Salufid. And the names of that trilogy, which always made me laugh when I would read them, was first, where God went wrong, second, some more of God's greatest mistakes, and third, just who is this God person anyway? And I'm sorry, the high schooler in me will always laugh at that. Um, (laughs) I also love, as a small detail, I think this was in the restaurant at the end of the universe a fundamental fact uh that adams came up with about the universe which is that on every single planet there is a liquid that is referred to as gin and tonics and in some places it is of course alcohol in other cases it's something else and uh, if memory serves adams had a description of this saying very young you know galactic linguists would always seize upon this as a really 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 important fundamental fact about the way the universe was organized and then they would spend decades about it until they became embittered old linguists criticizing how the young kids don't know what they're talking about and as someone who's been in the academy that does you know ring a bell also in the restaurant at the end of the universe i think there are prescient elevators elevators that are gifted with some minor ability to forecast the future because that way they arrive at your floor sooner and then (laughs) finally uh there is literally the best single fictional example of inflation uh given (laughs) in a novel and again i think this is in life the universe no this is still in the restaurant at the end of the universe which i more than i think about it i guess must have been my favorite one in which uh, a species arrives on a very, very prehistoric Earth. They decide to make leaves the currency (laughs) when they're walking around. And so the good news is is that everyone is a millionaire. The bad news is is that, like, you know, milk costs something like $6 million. So in this world now in which we're all experiencing inflation again, this is a nice way of of getting exposed to it. One last thing, which is there is also in The Hitchhiker's Guide... Truly, and I, I, you have to read the book to understand this in context. There is something like a three-page narrative description, uh, first-person narrative of a whale falling from the sky and about to impact a planet. Um, the emotional journey the whale takes. It is. I remember that. It is quite the yeah. emotional journey. And if, I, if memory yeah. serves, <laughs> the last line in that is like, oh, there's this object that's getting bigger. I hope it will be my friend. And something like that. It, yeah. It's something like that. And... I, I hate to give the spoiler alert, the, the planet was not the whale's friend in the end. Um, but again, it was just, it, what I loved reading it was, it never would have occurred to me, even if you were going for humor, that you would have that three pages. And so I, you just sort of, I, I genuinely admire the demented, you know, brain that came up with that idea. I do love the blowing up of Earth immediately. Like that... <laughs> I remember loving it even back then when I was not quite such a such a radical <laughs> about who is decentered and who is centered in this world because it's like decentering Earth, right? It's like recognizing that like oh we're not so special, right? 
And in so much of science fiction, it's the lazy way of creating stakes is the future of the Earth hangs in the balance, right? Mm -hmm. So you just blow up the fucking planet right away. <laughs> like, it's a, it's it's awesome. It is the anti-MCU, Anna, because, like, <laughs> most of the MCU films, you know, including all the way up to Avengers Endgame, the Earth is really the most important planet in the end. Like, it's, it's you know, yeah. even though it's not the most technologically sophisticated or what have you, that's where the key battle is and that's where all the, the so many of the superheroes come from. This is the exact opposite of that. Right. Yeah, I love it. I mean, and I think... I think that you hit upon what is great about about this series, and I'll be interested to reread it, is like the details, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I remember those details a lot better than I remember like the plot of anything, you know? So yes, it would, it would take right. me a long time to, uh, I, I mean, again, it's been a little while since I've read them. And I remember scenes in it, and I have a vague recollection, but the fact that I couldn't remember exactly when certain things were in the novels, it's the details that you remember. And it's the asides. It's a novel that is almost completely drenched with asides that, that are just delicious. Yeah. So uh, would I recommend this to others? I absolutely would. But I will acknowledge, uh, like Anna, that it has been some time since I've read this. And I think we need to do this for Cannon Fodder to see if it holds up. I would suggest that if you don't like the first 50 pages, in other words, if you can't handle the Earth being blown up, because among other things, <laughs> you know, they don't go to visit the regulatory place like that's only two light years yeah. away. You know what I remember about that, actually, yeah. now that I think about it, that's it is wonderful, mm -hmm. is Arthur Dent trying to gauge the impact of that on him. Mm -hmm. There's a great moment yes. that's instructive for writers, actually, yeah. and maybe for just people in general, where he tries to, to figure out what the emotional impact of the entire Earth, you know, being gone is for him. Mm-hmm. He does happen upon a way to think about it yes. that I will not reveal because it's very clever. I also have to add as a but political scientist, I, like that. I did love the Vogons, who are the creatures that destroy the Earth. And the way Adams describes them is that they are almost literally the perfect sort of deep state, as it were. <laughs> and, and, you know, because they're the perfect sort of shock troops for the deep state. And so that's uh, quite delicious as well. All right, Anna, what was your first one? This, I think, is in actually in chronological order. I think my whole list is in chronological order in terms of like what I'm thankful for and when I when I happened upon it in my life. My first thing is Madeline Lingle's A Wrinkle in Time. And I probably butchered her name, but I've never had to say it very often because <laughs> it is quite a famous book. Mm -hmm. You can just say A Wrinkle in Time. Yeah. The general plot, a girl named Meg goes on something of a hero's journey. Uh, she is kind of swooped up out of nowhere by three witches who are really more technological, not actual witches. They kind of take on the trappings of witches because they think that's what like earth people will kind of recognize oh. you know okay. and she has to save her father who's been trapped in another dimension because he's a mathematician that was experimenting with uh, folding space-time so it's got a lot in it but what i really loved about it i was gonna say as the daughter her. of a mathematician on are you saying that resonated with you but i don't have to <laughs> Yes, as a daughter of a mathematician, it really resonated with me. Yeah. And I think I read it in middle school. I'm pretty sure I read it in middle school. I remember I read it and then read all the sequels and then went back and read them again hmm. because that's how I am with books I really love. I'm going to uh, confess to your readers, I have never actually read it. 
Well, you know, I would say, spoiler alert for what I'm going to say later, it's never too late. Mm -hmm. I think it, I've reread it in adulthood. I haven't reread it anytime recently, um, but I reread it in adulthood. And the same things that I loved about it as a, you know, preteen and teen, I I still love about it. It has a redheaded protagonist, Mm -hmm. which, you know, gotta love. It has a very nerdy female protagonist, um, Meg, as I said. And I think... You know, Dan, you're old enough to remember. Like, there is a time I was like, thinking, when it was really hard to find. Yeah, that was like, not common when we were growing up, Anna. I think it is safe to say. Yeah, and and she is a nerd. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I really love around about the book is it it doesn't pull any punches about what it's like to be a nerd mm. and and to feel socially rejected. Mm-hmm. But it also doesn't make you feel sorry for her or anything. Like she's she's actually kind of a pill a lot of the time. Like she's not a she's not like a downtrodden nerd. She's kind of obnoxious yeah. in some ways. She's an actual nerd, is what um, you're saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like she's stubborn and she doesn't get along with people and 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 I liked that in a protagonist as well. <laughs> that resonated with me, I guess I'd say. <laughs> um, and the math stuff is is not you know, incredibly accurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think a, an actual mathematician would, would maybe find that part of the book as winsome as I do. But it was my first encounter with math as kind of a almost spiritual or mystical um, function. I think the only bar we have to be concerned about, Anna, is that is it treated better than psychohistory? Yes. Okay. Then <laughs> you know what? That's fine. That's fine. I can live with that. In part because it's just a bunch of hand waving. Right. Right. Like it's not. It's it's like there's a tesseract and they kind of describe it and bending space time. You know. It, but also just this idea that math can change. Like there's something about math that isn't just describing the universe, mm-hmm. but can kind of change it, hmm. which I find you know compelling. That's pretty deep. Actually. I think that. It also speaks to me in that it the relationship between Meg and her father, the mathematician. Don't want to get too deep here, but it's you know um, not perfect, mm-hmm. and he disappoints her hmm. at one point in the book pretty deeply. But then the relationship survives, and they still love each other. And I think you know, I mean, I'm not a parent, Dan, but I've been through it on the side of the kid. But that's like such an important part of you know, growing up when you realize your parents aren't perfect and that you can be disappointed by them, but that that's okay. There has to be a moment when you grow up in which you realize that your parents are human beings and therefore flawed and and have all of those flaws. And that's not always an easy moment. It happens to different people at different ages, I would add. But if you can find out through the language of science fiction, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, and like I said, and that's okay. Right. Like that being human is okay. Yes, it's like you don't have to be perfect to be a great dad. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be that that's not part of the job description, right? Mm-hmm. That it's it's the relationship and not like the idea, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. I would for sure recommend this to others as I said. Mm-hmm. I I would be interested to see what you would think of it. Dan. I actually no, um, I think this we might have to put this this could be another cannon fodder actually if you want. I mean, yeah, you know, it's not quite. I mean, it's interesting to think about if it's canon. I mean, it is a very popular book, but I guess I feel like I've never heard it referred to quite in the it, hushed tones way. Mm. Some stuff gets referred to. Maybe that because but it's a. We should it's definitely a do it. Book. I mean, it, it is. It, 
And it's a woman that wrote yeah, it because yeah. <laughs> Dan. <laughs> we could call it canon, though. Let's call it canon. I think we Let's get to call it canon. canon that sure. way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right, Dan. Now you. All right. My second one is uh, something that we have talked about. Indeed, we have actually talked about it in detail in a, in a previous iteration of this podcast, uh, The Churn. It is Max Brooks's novel, World War Z. With all due respect to Colson Whitehead Zone One, which is also a, a novel that I love, and Colson Whitehead is just a really good writer, I would say that this book is nothing less than the greatest zombie novel ever written. It's Max Brooks's novel of a worldwide war against the living dead, but it is told in a sort of episodic uh, Studs Terkel inspired style that hopscotches the globe. So it's almost in some ways less a novel than it is a sort of series of, of sort of mini narratives in which we find out how the living dead rising from the grave has affected, you know, various places uh, across the world. I did not read this book until pretty late in life. Uh, and in fact, I didn't read it until after I had agreed to write theories of international politics and zombies. I knew this book existed, and so I knew that it was going to provide some, some good source material for writing that textbook. What I also remember, however, is that whenever I would go to D.C. and go to Kramer Books, that damn book would taunt me because it was always in the front of Kramer Books when I would walk in and, you know, nonetheless did not actually buy it until I had to read it for this, you know, textbook. <laughs> you know, sometimes I put myself in a position where I have to read something mm -hmm. that I've been meaning to read. Yeah. Th this podcast has been a great example of forcing myself to read stuff that I've been meaning to. Speaking of which, like I did not read this for a long time. It you know came out, was very popular, mm -hmm. bestseller. Yeah. The movie was not good, <laughs> and although it had Brad Pitt yes. in it, but somehow you know Brad Pitt's in a bunch of stinkers. Mm -hmm. Let's be the you know, and I, it, the marketing of it and kind of the look of it made me think of it, of it as kind of a survivalist narrative of some kind. Mm -hmm. You know, like a how to. Almost. Well, to be fair, that is something like, Brooks also wrote another book called The Zombie Survival right. Guide. And so, right. and he's also. But yeah. I felt like, I felt like it was like a, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I thought it was like about surviving, right. like a novel about surviving mm -hmm. the, the zombies. And it's not that, I guess. That's the, you know, spoiler alert is that's not at all what it's about. No. It's about, it's about humanity, I guess, Dan. That's what I would say. I did finally read it and did absolutely love yeah. it. I haven't read enough zombie novels to know if it's the best, <laughs> but I did like it quite a bit. Yeah. I would also say that I think in some ways it surprised a lot of people because they said Brooks had written The Zombie Survival Guide, which really was a lot more tongue-in-cheek. And it makes sense because he was coming from Saturday Night Live. He was a comedy writer for them. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people assumed that, oh, he's just take dealing with zombies because... You know, it's a funny thing and so forth. But this is not a funny book. I mean, there are funny moments in it, but this is an extremely, you know, serious novel. In terms of why I'm thankful for it, I knew there was likely going to be some good international relations in it. But to this day, I remain blown away by what Brooks actually did, which is he really does manage to sort of have vignettes and settings that are incredibly grounded in the world uh, in which he creates. Also, you know, the humans win in this book, which, you know, spoiler alert, but that's actually unusual in the zombie genre. And in doing so, Brooks manages to 
basically avoid a lot of the sort of easy traps that a lot of the zombie narratives have, such as the moment you introduce the zombie, you flash forward 10 minutes or 10 pages and you're already in the post-apocalyptic hellscape. Brooks actually did his homework and figured out how you would have the breakdown of society, how you would have uh, initial warfighting strategies that would be very misguided. And this is also so good. It's it's like Alien and it is a rare case of a a novel or a film that is genre but also transcends the genre i mean sure yes it's about zombies but like any good zombie narrative it's really about how human beings respond to the living dead and like anna the film is not good and i really really wish that someone like hbo would somehow commission a more limited series based on it because i actually think that would be far more interesting and far more fascinating Also, I'm not going to lie, part of the reason I like this is because it is also indirectly responsible for some of my cooler experiences in life. Like the fact that I got to take my 12-year-old son to Comic-Con in San Diego because I was on a zombie panel uh, with Max Brooks. And there my son met Andy Serkis, among others. So he was really psyched about that. Um, And then also, yes, the film is not good, but for reasons too complex to get into, I actually got invited to go to the premiere of World War Z. At uh, in New York, and then got to go to the after party in which Max Brooks was there. He was delighted to see me, so I got to you know talk to him, and then I got to talk to Brad Pitt and shake his hand. And Anna, for that half second I shook his hand, I was the gayest man on the planet. <laughs> he was that good looking, and that actually wasn't even the highlight of that evening because at the end of that interaction, Max said, "Hey, why don't you come meet my dad?" So I got to talk to Mel Brooks. And so I'm very grateful for that. I do not have any stories to match that. (laughs) All I wanted to add to recommend the book is that there's a really cool twist on dogs knowing, Mm -hmm. like a great science fiction and horror trope, right? Is that dogs know when something is wrong. Mm -hmm. And that is true in this novel, but there's a very cool, it's a a little bit of a twist, Dan, Mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. I won't spoil it, but it is a laugh. For me, it was like a laugh out loud moment that also had to do with dogs. So how could I not? How could I not love it? And would I recommend it to others? This is literally the only zombie novel that I ever recommend to folks who disparage the genre. I also recommend Colson Whitehead's novel, to be clear, but you kind of have to like zombies in order to be able to enjoy Zone 1. This book I actually recommend to everyone because it, it really is, I think, that good. All right, Anna, what is your second thing that you are thankful for? My second um, piece of genre that I am very thankful for is Repo Man, starring Emilio Estevez and Harry Dean Stanton. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to say exactly what it's about. I mean, aliens are involved and repossessing cars (laughs) and mad scientists. Those are all things. And yet those aren't really at the guts of the film, Anna, if memory serves. No, um, there's a lot of great details in it too. But I was I was trying to come up with a good summation of the plot, and also I was looking up some of my favorite quotes, which then I went down a rabbit hole because I just <laughs> love the quotes from the movie so much. My opener to the to the episode is a quote from from Repo Man: "Let's go get sushi and not pay." Uh, something I used to say a lot, uh, like for no reason. I just kind of out of nowhere. I just thought it's it was a really great funny. fucking line, um, Anna. I mean, yeah. <laughs> This is the description that's in the movie quotes, which is just, it's for the wrong movie, but I have to read it. (laughs) Set in the near future, this story is about a replicant, part human and part bionic, who undergoes a heart transplant. (laughs) 
Due to the extreme economic hardships for its medical expenses, the replicant is forced to run away. That is not what this movie is about on any no. level. I don't know who put it there. I kind of love it. I think I know. There, I think there was a movie that came out in the last decade that was literally based on the idea of like organ harvesting or something. That might be it. I don't know. But okay. Yeah. That's, not, that's this not this movie. movie. Like yeah. I, <laughs> it's not this movie. The first time I experienced this movie was eighth or ninth grade and I watched it with my dad. Aww. Yeah, so this is a very dad-centric <laughs> gratitude list. And he loved it. And something people might have figured out about my dad listening to me talk about how awesome he is and how he's a mathematician and, and very logical and whatnot. My dad, dad, if you're listening, I love you. He's He has a great sense of humor. He himself is not a funny person. <laughs> he doesn't make jokes, mm-hmm. but he appreciates jokes. Right. And that makes him a good movie quoter. Mm-hmm. And this is a movie that he quotes from. And we used to quote to each other. And also, I remember him. I just remember him delighting in it. And that made me happy. You know, no, there's especially because it's a very strange. Oh, movie. yeah. I, I'm actually impressed that he liked it. <laughs> um, I remember exactly when I the first time I got exposed to this, which was summer after my junior year in high school. I was at Yale Summer School. And that Yale Summer School had... Brag. That was not a brag. You know, (laughs) anyone could go to Yale Summer School. That wasn't that big of a deal. But the key thing was is that the... Yale had this incredible film series. In fact, I was where I, like, saw The Terminator. I saw The Seven Samurai there. I remember that. And I remember watching this movie and just thinking, this is insane. I love it. So, yes, I also have fond memories of this. I mean, it's a great movie to see when you're a teen because it is just fucking wild right and i think for for people like us you know i was very attracted to stuff that was different for being different sake you know i mean i knew i was different (laughs) and this was when i kind of figured out that there's a whole subculture that where people celebrate this kind of stuff there's various subcultures where people celebrate. right and this is the pre-internet days when it was not necessarily all that easy to find this out right yes right exactly so I will go on about why I'm so grateful for it. Uh, it is my first experience with the Harry Dean Stanton rule, which is that he's <laughs> not in a bad movie. It's just true. And then probably the most significant thing about it, besides getting to see my dad love something that was weird and me loving something that was weird, finding out we both liked weird things, um, was the music. Mm-hmm. It is a snapshot of Southern California punk rock. And... I was 13, you know, living actually not in Austin proper. I was living in Round Rock, which is now kind of part of Austin, but at the time was kind of the boonies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I knew that there was such a thing as punk rock. I'd seen like Sid and Nancy, mm-hmm. and I knew that there was punk rock music. It was the same director, And I'd by probably the way. seen. Yes, that's yeah. right. Alex Cox, I think is his name. Yeah. Yes, I saw this. You should be very clear. Yeah, I saw this it, not in a theater. This was it was it, it had a rotation on HBO, mm-hmm. I think, probably because of Sid and Nancy, like HBO might have picked yeah. it up. But I knew that there was such a thing as punk rock. I've seen people, you know, with spiked hair and all that. That's like a, a pop culture reference. I knew I didn't know a lot of punk music. Right. right? And I kind of assumed it was all just noise. And I didn't mind that. There's a part of me that actually really loves uh, some examples of, of noise rock, noise core. But this little snapshot of Southern California punk rock is actually shows some diversity. 
there's a song from Black Flag called TV Party <laughs> that I am very tempted to play for you right now because <laughs> it is fucking catchy like the flu. Like if I played it for you, like you would not get it out of your head for days. It is, and it, it, it revealed to me like that there is a pop music center to a lot of punk rock. Um, and that's, that's you know, pop punk later, Green Day, et cetera, Nirvana. like it all becomes really yeah. obvious. Yeah, Nirvana for that matter, yeah. But what it did for me in showing me this, like it's not a huge variety of sound, but like this... A little bit of a smorgasbord of punk was communicated to me very clearly that punk wasn't about exactly sounding a certain way or exactly looking a certain mm. way. That punk rock is about an attitude, you mm. know, and that's what those things had in common. That's what that's what the movie and the music have in common. Dan, would it surprise you to learn that that attitude is is anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist? No, that's, yeah, no, really, Anna? Yeah, I. That's what that attitude just, is. That was the wow. attitude that made, you know, made a cohesive whole of all of these it things. It never would have and, occurred yes. to me that punk rock <laughs> would have been railing against the capitalist system. That is an interesting... I'm writing this down. Hold on. Punk rock. Yeah. And that... Um, I'm not going to say again, it was my first introduction to that idea, but it certainly was a catchy introduction, <laughs> you know. Um Again, TV Party is very catchy. There's also a song called When the Shit Hits the Fan that's about the recession. And then there's a song that's not very subtle called Let's Start a War. (laughs) You know, you don't need punk rock, if memory serves, does not have to necessarily be all that symbolic. I mean, it can be direct. That's kind of the fucking point. Exactly. Um, And then, Dan, would it surprise you that a movie called Repo Man is also pretty critical of capitalism and consumer culture? I have to admit uh, <laughs> that I'm not that surprised, Anna. Yes, that that's a possible. That is one way the film could have gone. Certainly, yes. It is pretty delightful, mm-hmm. um, and I think it might have been something that turned me on to the idea that critiques of culture can be super fun mm-hmm. and serious. Yes, you know, and that you don't also have to make your point. I mean, you can make your point in a ham-fisted way. But also, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Oh, I can say it. Have you ever read Tom Stoppard's okay. The Real Thing? I have not. Tom Stoppard has this great description of of the difference between good writing and bad writing. It's a cricket bat that, like, you know, if you just, you know, don't do the wood correctly and you try to use a cricket bat, it's going to hurt your hand. And that's just dumb, bad writing that even if it's true, it, it doesn't necessarily do anything. But if, on the other hand, you compress the pieces of wood properly and then you hit a cricket ball, it will actually explode off the bat and you won't feel any pain. And that is good writing. I am reluctant to give it that much credit. But what I will say is that it goes back to some of the good good versus good yeah. bad. I, I mean, I want to. I haven't seen this movie in a few years, so we have to, we we have might to have do this movie as well. Yes. It does not take itself seriously, even though it makes serious <laughs> points. Like, in some ways, it's a very silly yeah. movie, but... It sort of wears its politics and its heart on its sleeve. So, like, I I did go back and listen to some of the soundtrack when I was writing this down. And that I'm definitely going to, like, after we get off this call, like, I'm probably going to listen to the soundtrack. Um, there's a great Iggy Pop song. Like, it's just great songs. Yeah, just, absolutely. It's really, like I said, it's a snapshot of a certain time that we shan't see again. But it's not just the songs, Anna, right? <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, like the entire movie is like, I mean, it's just one. I mean, the 
the one-liners and the quotables mm-hmm. from this movie are infinite almost. Like I think you could almost just like just read everything <laughs> off of the script and it would really be funny. Uh, besides let's go get sushi and not pay harry dean stanton says um a line that i used to say all the time normal people spend their lives getting out of tense situations a repo man spends his life getting into tense situations (laughs) um which is something i've said about myself in my various careers another thing that i believe it's harry dean stanton or one of the other repo men says is look at all those assholes ordinary fucking people (laughs) and that describes my general attitude for many years. Um, I, you know, we were talking about like being different and talk about celebrating that. It's a very, I think, you know, common teenage thing to seize upon a difference and then decide that makes you better than other people. You know, I don't know if I actually ever thought I was better than other people, but I, I did like the idea of feeling sorry for ordinary people. There are times where, you know, if you were feeling isolated or what have you, that is a comforting feeling. I will say that I think as you get older, hopefully you, I don't know, I have a more capacious view. I hope you hopefully have a more capacious view of people. But yes, when you were a teenager, this will hit you a certain way. There is a little mini monologue about a plate of shrimp (laughs) that I can't give justice to without quoting in its entirety. (laughs) And if you're not familiar with it, you're just going to have to watch the movie. (laughs) <laughs> Anna, I all I remember from that, I remember the play of shrimp, and then I also remember I do my best thinking on the bus, which is just a spectacular. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Same character. Yes. That no, it's, it's that. in that monologue. Yeah. It is in that monologue. I'm pretty. Oh, sure. that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It is. A, it is kind of a brilliant monologue, yeah. actually. So, again, I think we're actually just making a to do list. Yeah, Dan. we are. Like th- that's that's what we. The doing. other thing I have to say about this film, and it really is a paradox, is that it stars Emilio Estevez, because. And I don't mean this to speak ill of Emilio Estevez, but almost his entire rest of his, like, you know, acting career, he never did anything like this again, from what I can figure out. No. Like, he really is a a convincing punk in this film. And, like, you know, after this, like, he's always the sort of mainstream guy. And it's very strange to me. Yeah, he is super convincing. And, and another cool thing about it is that he's not dressed super weird or anything. Again, like, yeah. so the end of this movie was like oh so this is what it means to be a, a punk right rocker, and in fact right? in some ways it's like, telling it, it's, that Emilio Estevez could convincingly be a punk yeah, yeah. well yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he never I, yeah you're right I mean I think he's been in some good oh, movies yeah. but he's never been in anything no he's like never this. been anything like, this, again I'm not knocking Emilio Estevez as an actor it's just if you look at his other choices this is like it's like in a different quadrant from everything else that he was in. And so it's it's fascinating. In a way, this would be a much more, if one was going to guess which Estevez brother yeah. would have starred in this movie, it would not have been that Emilio. That is a safe way of putting it, yes. It would have been the yes. other guy. That's a good way of putting it. I like that. <laughs> All right, Dan, what about you? What's next? All right, my last thing that I'm thankful for is also easily the stupidest. It is the film The Chronicles of Riddick. So this is the middle and easily most ludicrous film in the lesser known Vin Diesel franchise, uh, sandwiched between two actually very good films, the first being Pitch Black and the third one being Riddick. 
All of them are helmed by uh, David Twahi, who we, I believe, talked about before because he was uh, responsible, at least in part, for Waterworld, which, again, I'm going to just apologize to Anna. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Every time, you know, I bring that up. Although, again, I think it was a good episode. The first time I experienced this film was, in fact, on basic cable. I, in fact, love Pitch Black. Pitch Black is a great little film, which we might have to do at some point. This sequel got panned, deservedly so, and so I did not see it until it was on TNT, I believe. I remember I loved Pitch Black, Mm -hmm. which I, again, we are making a to-do list here, because Pitch Black was like kind of a surprise how good it was. Yes, no one was expecting that. And I remember being excited about this (laughs) movie, and then the reviews coming out and being like, do I love Vin Diesel enough to... Risk it, and I decided I did not. <laughs> so, based on the description so far, listeners might well be wondering, Dan, why are you thankful for this film? And and that is a fair question, and I will tell you why on it because it is so bad. It is so bad that it's fun. David Twahey has implied that essentially the studio wanted him to make a sequel, and you know, remember, Vin Diesel is a big action hero at this point, um, as he still is, I believe. And he responded with this sort of operatic film complete with it like a development of a new religion in terms of the world building a group called the necromongers and a legitimately all-star cast carl urban is in this film tandy newton is in this film calm fiori judy dench is in this film anna judy dench is in this film and has to say the worst fucking dialogue she clearly has ever said in a film my favorite is that judy dench in particular plays a character that is referred to as an elemental so she's sort of half there half not as she puts it in the film, if memory serves, she can't fly, but she can glide very well. <laughs> yeah, I'm not kidding. Fiori, uh, Urban, and Newton are all necromongers. They all have to wear the most absurd outfits because they're necromongers. And they, again, have to speak in this <laughs> Wait, stentor. Necromongers, that, that should tip should have yes, tipped them off exactly. as actors. You know? I, the reason yeah. I love this film, and I'm thankful for it, however, is that when I was writing at least two of my books... And Anna, you, you've written books, so you know this. You know, there are times with if you are very fortunate, you will get into a writing jag where all you are doing is writing. You're just like, you know, you're finally in the zone. You're just trying to get as much on the page as humanly possible. You know you're going to have to revise later, but at least it's actually flowing as opposed to the many, 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 many days where it does not. And at the end of those days, I would be exhausted. My brain would still be like going a million miles an hour. I couldn't sleep, but I didn't know what else to do. And I would just sort of zone out on the television. And I would inevitably stumble across this film. And you know what it would do, Anna? It would calm my brain down. It Because it's so silly. My personal favorite in terms of the silliness of it is that at one point, Riddick is in a prison on a planet called Crematoria, in which if you are exposed to the sun, it goes up to like 500 degrees Fahrenheit or something. And they're trying to get from the prison. They've escaped. They're trying to get from the prison to the hangar. And one of the other characters says, it's going in the right direction. Meaning that if they manage to go, they're going away from the sun. As if they're like, you know, <laughs> like the few miles they're going to have to go will somehow make a huge difference. That they'll somehow manage to outrace the sun. I am now very <laughs> curious about this movie, I confess. It's really bad. I'm not going to. Is it a laundry folding movie? A paying bills movie yeah yeah like, it's definitely a laundry movie i would say it's definitely a laundry film it, okay. it, it, it works that way would i recommend this film to others right. not sincerely no but that said if you liked pitch black 
and you do want to see the third film, Riddick, this is the film in between them, and it's the one that connects the two of them. So think of it as... <laughs> this, this is, is the, the film, film between them. This is a film between them, and in order to understand sort of why Riddick is where he is in the third film, you do kind of have to watch this movie. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I would recommend it. All right. Well, I, I like I said, we're making a to-do list, but I feel like Pitch Black should be no, on it, definitely maybe not, not this one. one. No. All right, Anna, let's get to our your third thankful sci-fi book. It is The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. And um, I would try to summarize the plot, but there are a lot of plots. <laughs> it is a narratively complex book. It is a fantasy novel with a troubadour knight hero. There's elements of Harry Potter, you know, there's the go to learning to be a wizard Mm -hmm. stuff, but also just Lin-Manuel is actually uh, supposed to be making the movie um, Mm -hmm. adaptation of it. Yes, Lin-Manuel Miranda is supposed to be making the movie adaptation. And I I sounded exactly right when I heard that because the main character, like I Mm -hmm. said, is a troubadour knight and music is a really important part of the story and his his coming of age as a musician, Mm -hmm. like. And there's also evil, well, of and, course, you yes. know, sword, sorcery, et cetera, et cetera. But it is kind of hard to, to summarize as a plot. And the first time I uh, came across it, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that I'd heard about it. It came out, I think, in the early aughts, uh, maybe late aughts. And I'm sure that I heard about it. It, it, it was uh, big in the world mm-hmm. of genre. But I'd never really gotten curious about it. Until at some point during the mid-Trumps, <laughs> if we can refer to that era as that. Pre-pandemic, mid-Trump. obviously, I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah, pre-pandemic, mid-Trump presidency. I got really into, like, epic hmm. fantasy. And, like, a lot of epic fantasy. You know, I was basically picking up books based on their thickness. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> And whether or not they had mini mm-hmm. sequels, you know, I read the Wheel of Time, right, series, which is actually uh, coming out. During... I think they're 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 doing a film version of that. Yep. On Amazon next Prime. week, yeah. actually, mm-hmm. this weekend. By the time you hear this, uh, listeners, the, the mm-hmm. it will be out. Um, on no, Netflix, I think it's Amazon Prime. I think. Yep, Amazon Prime. You're right, Amazon Prime. And I also read the Brian Sanderson's. Uh, he has he has some doorstopper <laughs> books. This one, for some reason, I think was the best of those or the one that I connected with the most, even though it, it has kind of a, it has, I'm not going to call them cliches that it plays tropes, with yes, some tropes. Yes, fair enough. I confess uh, listeners. I have not only not read these, I don't think I'd heard of them until I, I Anna mentioned them. So, you know, and, and there's reasons why I'm not terribly into science fantasy, but, but Anna, tell me why you are thankful for them. Well, you know, I wasn't into science fantasy mm-hmm. either. It, it seemed very as growing up, yeah, I was a huge, I almost put Chronicles of Narnia in this list, and that was my formative reading as far as mm-hmm. genre goes, and that's much more fantasy right. than science fiction. But pretty quickly, I feel like fantasy is much more boy-centric than even science huh. fiction, you know? Like, it, it felt it felt boy-centric in a way that mm-hmm. I didn't like. I don't know exactly. Maybe it's because they took unicorns away from me. <laughs> Like there, I went through a period, like all a lot of young women, girls, where I basically just loved nothing but unicorns, and you then you start reading like epic fantasy, and like there are no unicorns, Dan. Like, wow, 
<laughs> I'm learning a lot, a lot in of this, recording this podcast, Anna. Okay, there are like there might be yeah. some, but like it's a lot of like so, I mean it's very I don't know like there's a lot of fighting and sword. I don't I mean I probably people are listening to this getting mad at me, but that was my <laughs> that was my take yeah. on the genre. And what I'll say is that I wasn't it wasn't like I found. <laughs> Like oh it isn't it isn't at all what like what I thought it's more like for some reason I was just okay a world that was new to me and completely different from what mm-hmm. I was experiencing and and this is really mm-hmm. important Dan these books were very long I was in a place like mentally I read very fast that's something mm-hmm. people should know like I'm an unusually speedy mm-hmm. reader and and I often have to. Like make myself slow down reading if I'm enjoying right. something, and I, you know, the middle of the the Trump era, I didn't want to have to switch gears. Like I wanted to stay in the world of a single novel for as mm-hmm. long as possible, and this was perhaps the most That's enjoyable fair. of of all of the worlds that I was in. It does have a sequel called uh, The Wise Man's Fear. But another reason I am grateful for this book is that Rothfuss has uh, pulled a George R.R. R. Martin. <laughs> is that um, a good or bad thing, Anna? <laughs> his third book. Well, his third uh, book in the trilogy has yet to appear. He's, he's been overdue for mm-hmm. many years now. Not quite, I think, George R.R. R. Martin mm-hmm. late. But as someone who often struggles with deadlines, <laughs> I kind of am comforted. Uh, when I see people far more successful than I am also Fair struggle enough. with deadlines. Although I really wish he would write it because it is a really cool mm-hmm. series. So I think that captures about it. It was a place that I escaped to for long periods of time. I, the, the books that I mentioned, by the way, are also good. The um, Brian Sanderson and the Wheel of Time series, mm-hmm. um, both great. But this this was the most fun of all I don't of know why I wasn't as much into science fantasy growing up actually i take that back i do know why i think there were two reasons the first is that i think as a general rule i preferred reading hard sci-fi because i think i liked that exposition and tech talk better than i liked whatever you would have to read in terms of science fantasy in terms of the mythology or the world building and Mm -hmm. i again it's just a preference i'm not saying i'm right i'm just saying that i like preferred reading about the ansible and ender's game for example than what was going on in terms of the wall and in, in terms of George R. R. Martin. I tried reading the first Game of uh, Thrones book and just couldn't quite, it didn't hold my attention, even though I'd watched the show. I also blame my brother, Ben, if you're listening, this is your fault, um, <laughs> because he was into science fantasy growing up. He had like all these Piers Anthony books. And I just remember looking at them and thinking, no, I just not as much into this. And, of course, my brother and I tend to balance each other. And, and so, you know, if I like something, he doesn't always like it and vice versa. So that is probably an immature reason, but nonetheless might have explained what was going on. This is sort of an interesting question to me about, like, both of us having um, a little bit of antipathy towards at least. Like, I think I've now, I don't know. I mean, I still prefer hard sci-fi or, or sci-fi. I want to be clear. I think I prefer fantasy, reading but... hard sci-fi. I think watching it is something yeah. different. Like, I liked Game of Thrones for the first six seasons. I actually thought that was well done. Right. You know, there's other science fantasy, I guess, that I, I don't necessarily, I can't think of one. But I, I'm not necessarily opposed to watching it. It's reading it that I have the issue with. It's interesting, like, you, you, you zero in on the mythology versus, like, the yeah. exposition. To me, those are very similar. I know, and I, and that's, I love... They are very <laughs> similar. 
we've never talked about this. I yeah. love exposition. Like I think like one of my favorite parts of any any genre of fiction is when they tell you the story right. behind the story. Like when they're like, and this is yes. why this is happening because so and so did such and such. It's such a such a date. And it's funny because we've we've talked whatever. on this podcast a lot about how in film or in television you need to show not tell. And I think that's part right. of the reason why I like it in books, which is the exposition is like, oh, okay. I'm getting this. I'm getting the internal logic. And you like seeing the, the way the, the, the world is being created. But I guess the worlds that I like being created have to have some grounding in, I guess, fact. I, or, or that's, I guess, why I prefer hard sci-fi. I'm not, again, I'm not saying I understand why others do not. And so it's it's just an interesting thing. And that does get to why these books appeals me when they did though because to me these fantasy novels have less to do with the real world than science fiction right because science fiction is often extrapolating out from here right you know and it could happen or whatever but or it's making an extremely trenchant point about what the times we are living in right right yeah and fantasy does that as well but it is a more you're building a more distant world Hmm. You have to travel farther, yeah. You know, to that world. I think we've actually managed to find the theme in in what we've chosen. Oh, what is that, Dan? You know, much like Thanksgiving, uh, I am thankful for the kind of sci-fi that is sort of like comfort food. But also, for me, comfort food includes things like tech talk. <laughs> and also, by the way, um, I would add creativity, which is to say that, like, you know, even the Chronicles of Riddick, which again, not a good film in any way. But I actually kind of like the demented, like, world building in that. This weird, bizarre religion that that has come up. There's something called the Underverse, which gets mentioned a lot in that movie, which makes no sense whatsoever. But nonetheless, I actually admire David Twy swinging for the fences and missing. I think one of the the theme for me i think that you're you've you've hit on the theme for your choices obviously and the theme for me is escapism although it's escapism that maybe ultimately is comforting as well i'm gonna say something about safe spaces (laughs) which is maybe a weird thing to bring up but it's the first thing that came to mind which is that i used to be very like anti the idea of safe space especially Mm -hmm. in an academic setting like i went to university of chicago dan I taking a stand against the safe spaces that's right yeah until like at some point someone explained it to me as like no it's not like you go there and stay Mm -hmm. there forever it's you're in a place where you can kind of get some of yourself back you know it's a timeout space it's like a place where you're surrounded by uh, empowering Mm -hmm things and then you go out and deal with the world and in that sense the logic of a safe space makes sense yes yeah, and I do think that's how <laughs> I mean, I think that's the most useful thing that safe spaces can do, right? You don't live right. in a safe space, but you do go there to get some mm-hmm. of your energy back. And that is I think how some of the the pieces of art that we've been talking about that's what they do for me is I get to go somewhere where my everyday life doesn't feel like it's beating down my door i think in some ways so you've watched community right anna yeah yeah Yeah. i think in some ways we're both describing abed has this tendency in the show he has this dreamatorium and i i think in some ways it's like that where you know when he has difficulty confronting the world because among other things he's on the autism spectrum he goes to his safe space also and there is a virtue in going to the safe space so long as you then eventually go out but 
again, in this theme of being thankful for things, I like that there is sci-fi that makes me, you know, comforted for a while, and then I can then go back out and engage in the rest of the world. Yeah. I know that Dan and I would be interested to hear listeners' thoughts mm-hmm. on pieces of science fiction or genre fiction that you are grateful for. You know, Dan, people could tweet those things at us. They could. Or they could become a- they could become patrons. Hey, that's an idea, Anna. They could become patrons. And then on the Discord, mm-hmm. I bet someone starts a thread or something about where people talk about the pieces of science fiction and genre fiction that they're grateful for. So if that interests you, you should become a patron. And Dan, you know what? We we left out something, a very important thing that I know you and I are both grateful for. We did? What did we leave out? Karen. We are extremely thankful for Karen, who I cannot stress enough makes both of us sound far more coherent. Sorry. Damn it. <laughs> leave that's that a, in, Karen. Uh, yes, you have perfect. to leave that in. <laughs> Listeners, that is an example of the ways in which Karen, you know, the eminent service Karen does to take our mangled words and make them sound super coherent through the editing. So, Karen, we are very thankful for you. Yes. And I am personally thankful for her. Karen and I go back a bit. She is more than an engineer. She is a friend. And I... One of the many reasons I am grateful to be doing this podcast, not to get too corny, is that I get to stay in touch with Karen. And I also, you know, Dan, I get to stay in, not just in touch with you, but like we do this thing together. Yeah, we do. Like we create this thing together. And I am thankful that we have done this. This has been a a wonderful thing to do this past year, especially when we started it. It was the worst moments of the pandemic. And this was our safe space in some ways. You know, and so I am very grateful for that. And thank you, Anna. Until next time, Dan. Keep this channel open for more.